1 Corinthians chapter 6. We continue through this chapter. We have one message left in it, but there's uh, just so many things that we want to uh, not rush through. Uh, last week, when we dealt with uh, Christian freedom, we saw that all sin begins with self-love. One puts his will and desires over the Lord and others, and so, therefore, loving God and others is the fulfillment of God's love. We uh, saw Paul asking three questions uh, that we are to, that helps us ascertain what is right and wrong. Does it help or harm the cause of Christ? Is it something I can control or does it control me? Does it edify or harm my brothers and sisters in Christ? And uh, if all the answers to those things are all good, then um, we know that it can be done in faith and not, not sin. We uh, define Christian freedom. It involves a freedom from sin's guilt and condemnation. One aspect of it, Christian freedom also, is freedom from sin's dominion so that we can serve Christ, so that we can be godly, because we could not be before we were saved. And then freedom uh, does have an aspect of we are free from all covenant restrictions and man-made traditions. Unfortunately, I think many people... When they think of Christian freedom, they focus primarily on the last one, which is really the the least of it. Uh, Well, we're free from the law, which in one sense we are free from the law, but we're not free from the law of God. And certainly even the Old Covenant law, the Mosaic law, uh, while we're not under it as a covenant anymore, there's much, as we went through Exodus, for instance, there's much in the law that is good for us to help us understand good principles that help us understand what it is to serve God and how to please Him. The laws of our land, the Constitution, were derived primarily from Old Testament law because they're they're good uh, overall. It gives us good principles of what is fair and just and uh, that how society should be run. So we're not there's it's not that we're free from studying the Old Testament law. There's principles there that we are to abide by. So these are all things that uh, there's been much debate and disagreement, but, you know, if you don't, you know, there's, there's good things there, but it takes time to serve it all, to study it all out. Primarily, then, we are free to use all things and situations in life for Christ as we see fit according to his word. So not just as we see fit, but according to his word. And this is much better than following any list of commands. We dealt a little bit with that. The main concept that makes something right to do or not is whether it serves our purposes as Christians. Yes, some things are listed to give us an idea of how to judge everything else. There are some lists of sins, of do's and don'ts in Scripture. But you notice that they are never a complete list because we never need complete lists. As we mature in our love for Christ, we will start living more and more for Him, not for ourselves, and also more and more for others and not for ourselves. And as we learn to live by love, we fulfill the primary understanding of what is God's law is. And so, those are some of the things that we dealt with last week. 
So Paul has been giving us a very clear practical instructions on what it is to be a Christian, how to behave. And he uh, tells us why some things are sin and other things are not. And it's again, it's not just like in raising the children. It is not enough to just know, well, that's wrong, that's right. Why are these things right and wrong? That's what maturity, you know, we want our children to understand why things are right and wrong, why serving the Lord is much better than serving the flesh, right? It's not just enough to follow rules. If we if we summed it up, we might say that this list of sins that we dealt with over the uh, in verses 9 to 11 in particular describe those that live for themselves and not God. I mean, they all have that in common. So they're not just isolated acts. These are, these are lifestyles. And so starting in verse 12, he showed us where we are, how we are to think about things so that we serve the Lord and not just fall into sinful lifestyles. And so in verse 12, we, we see how we are to think through these issues so we know what is right and what is wrong. It's more than just that list. And so he starts to quote phrases that were used by the Corinthian church, by some anyway, to excuse sin. We saw that they were probably ones that Paul had used, but he completes the phrase to give the biblical idea. They were only using half-truths, you might say. So while all these things were lawful, the thing to keep in mind is whether they are helpful in the kingdom, whether I control it or whether it controls me, whether it builds up the body of Christ. And so the premise on which the Corinthians seem to be basing their morality, or their immorality in this case, is whether it's legal or not. All things they claim are lawful for me, and which seems to mean that in practice they are free to do whatever or anything they want to do as long as it's legal. And it may be, well be that the Corinthians attempt to justify their theology on the basis of Paul's teaching that we're not under the law but Christ, but just because we're not under the Mosaic law doesn't mean that now we are, we can do whatever we can do basically as long as we get by with it, as long as we get away with it, you know, as long as it's legal. But that's, that's not how we are to think. And so he begins in verse 13 to look at all this in terms of our bodies and physical control of our bodies, primarily in the context of sexual sins. Because all this, that that's the, the main issue here is the Corinthians thinking that they can uh, visit the temple prostitute, as it were, you know, because it's, it's just everybody's doing it and that it's okay. So everything he's been talking about is to eventually get us to the point of understanding why sexual immorality is wrong, because that's the biggie. That's the one that we struggle with, so many struggle with. But of course, it, once you understand that the principles behind this, as we've said, these principles then help us understand right and wrong in every other area. And so I think he does this firstly because this was a particularly big problem in the Corinthian church, as we talked about. And, as it really is for anyone who's not dead yet, right? Not only is it one of mankind's hardest areas to control, but the damage of it is perhaps in some ways the worst type of sin, which I think Paul will get to, we'll get to the end of the message. I think the fact that he will go on to the subject of marriage and sexual purity in chapter 7, uh, just, it proves that, that this, this is an ongoing discussion here with Paul. He, 
it's something that we've got to have a clear understanding of. And when we don't, we see the problems that it creates both personally in the church and also in the culture. So he continues to quote perhaps the Corinthian church members who tried to use the argument here in verse 13 that sex is just a natural and necessary body, bodily function and it's nothing more just as food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. So, you know, I'm just doing what my body tells me to do. Well, Paul adds, though, just as he did before in verse 12, he adds what they are missing. In verse 13, he says, Yes, the relationship between the stomach and the food is, as you say, it is necessary to eat, and there aren't really that many guidelines there. So we eat to live. We, we eat so that we might live. So eat to live, right? Eat and live. The only real law is concerning gluttony when it comes to eating. So it's not like we, we just can eat any way we want to. There is Even that has certain confines. We are not to be gluttons, so we do not live to eat. It's a big difference. We eat to live, and God has made food tasty, so it's enjoyable, so it's more than just eat to live, but be careful that you don't live to eat, because then you've gone too far. You've taken something, a good gift, and you've perverted it. So what Paul adds is that the time is coming when this will change and we will not have to eat to live because God will destroy the body, both the body and the stomach, you know, at death. And so the relationship between our stomach and body will come to an end. And so I think his point is that this is temporary and while not unimportant because we can sin by how much we put into our mouths and so forth, our bodies overall cannot be viewed quite so simply. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're comparing the stomach and food to the use of the body uh, in sexuality. And, and Paul says, wait, there's some other things that we need to consider here. Our bodies are not going to be destroyed and never seen again, never used again. Notice as it goes on to in verse uh, 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So, yes, the physical restraints of your body will come to an end, but your body is special. Your body shall live forever in a glorified state. So it matters how you use your body. That's kind of what he's getting to. <clears throat> They've been given to us to be used in a certain way with higher purposes, and they will continue to be so in eternity. So then, his point is, unlike the animals that will die, that's the end of it all, we are created in God's image, and so it matters how you use your body. You cannot simplistically compare sexual activity with eating. Our sexuality will end in a similar way, as he says. So, it, so to let it dominate your life, to dominate as people are today, your identity and, you know, everything that revolves around that makes no sense since our primary function is to serve the Lord. And so you completely misunderstood what your body is for. And so he reminds us that while God hasn't really laid out specific laws on what you are to eat, 
He has made our sexuality a huge part of being human. And this, we'll come back to this at the end, because that this will kind of be the whole point of all this. He says here, your, your sexuality is a huge part of being human, of functioning in society and serving the Lord. And he gives us specific instructions in much more detail than he does with what you eat. So again, the, the whole comparison that they were trying to make just doesn't work. <clears throat> what I think he's going to say here is that the understanding of what it is to be male and female and single and married and the use of sex is one of the most important things we need to understand to function properly as a human being. What I'm going to say today is something that you will not hear outside of the church. Unless you go to a marriage counselor, a Christian marriage counselor who, you know, deals with that. You will not hear this in the world. So, please pay attention. <clears throat> Let me say that again. The understanding of what it is to be male and female, single and married, and the use of sex is one of the most important things we need to understand to function properly as human beings. And if this is true, it means that mankind has shown its fallenness in the way it treats marriage and sex as much as in any other way that we can. And why it's one of the biggest problems a society will have. Yes, wars and cruelty and murder, and there's so many ways that that mankind shows its fallenness. But it shows it in this area as much more so than in any other area, which I think is, explains Romans 1, where Paul says that one of the clearest and most destructive ways the rejection of God is seen is in the misuse of sex, sexual perversion. And, and even and remember, adultery, fornication, uh, sex outside of marriage is all sexual perversion. We don't like to think of it like that. Any misuse of it is, is perversion, right? There's, they're headed for... Set, it, this is God's judgment for suppressing the knowledge of God. John MacArthur puts it like this. Verse 13. The stomach and food have only a horizontal, temporal relationship. At death, the relationship ceases. But our bodies are far more than biological. For believers, they endure forever with God. So, that's, I think, a proper way of understanding the verse. And I think this is why Paul says in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things unto himself. He's putting importance upon our bodies, not just in the future, but as he's going to, as Paul's going to finish in chapter 6 of our text, our bodies then, therefore, are a temple of the Holy Ghost, a temple of God. God dwells in it, so it matters how you use your body because you're carrying God with you everywhere you go, and whatever you're doing with your body, you're forcing, in a way, God to be part of it. And if you just think that, think those things through, you begin to see what, what bothers Paul here about all this. So as we work through his thoughts here, we see he starts by giving us a, a 
couple of basic truths concerning the body. First of all, our bodies are for the Lord primarily. It's not just our souls that we are to keep pure. We are humans, and by human, that means we have a body. You can't, you can separate the soul from the body. God can. But not permanently, because we were made to be in bodies. So it's, it's who we are. We can't, we don't just serve God with our minds, and as long as I keep my mind pure, I can let my body go, it doesn't matter what my body does. No, because that's who you are as well. They are not to be seen as something we can do with as we, as, what, as we like, as long as we somehow keep our spirits pure. And we know, of course, that's nonsense, anyone who's honest, because we know that our body never does anything that our mind doesn't want it to do to start with. Uh, now, obviously, our, our body can ache, and I don't want my body to ache, but it does anyway. But I'm talking about it's actions that we commit, right? So, the last phrase in 13b seems to be a counter-proverb to the first one, where Paul says, okay, yes, food is for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and so forth, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So, he said, that's what you should be thinking, uh, that uh, immora- the body is not for immorality, it's for the Lord. You're focusing on the stomach and food, and you're and you're making a false comparison. Bodily functions are also from the Lord, and so cannot be divorced from our overall understanding of who we are and what our purpose is. Our purpose is not just to remain mentally pure. Our purpose is to make our entire being to be pure. So we notice this correction in 13b. It isn't a perfect correlation here. The unspoken inference is that the Corinthians apply the same logic to the body and its sexual design and appetites, uh, uh, the same logic or comparison of food and uh, its stomach with uh, uh, our body and visiting a prostitute. And, and, you know, I know probably every preacher has heard it way more often than he wants to hear it, People say, after all, um, I'm only human. Usually to uh, justify some sin. Or God made me a sexual being. Well, yeah, it's true, but what's that got to do with sin? The Corinthians here, the reasoning seems to be, he made me to need sex, therefore, I'm having sex with a prostitute because that's what my body's for. I'm simply meeting my physical needs. Just as I eat when I'm hungry. And Paul says, no, nope, you're not looking at this right at all. So they say, what difference does it make what I do with this body anyway, since God's going to do away with it? Well, and Paul says, well, he's going to, you're not doing away with it, he's going to, he's going to make it better somewhere. So what he'll bring out later is that just because you have physical abilities and functions and urges and so forth, doesn't necessarily mean that you must exercise them indiscriminately. This makes, then, sex different from eating. And, you know, I'm hoping I'm preaching to the choir. I'm hoping that there's no one in this church that really struggles understanding this. Now, you know, temptation is temptation. We all struggle with fleshly problems. But, you you should be struggling with what we're saying here. We understand this to be the case. 
It is just as real a desire as eating, but it isn't necessary to live. So clearly, there are a lot of things about us physically and intellectually and emotionally that are broken and we must deal with, knowing that ultimately it will all be fixed. But this is our fallenness that looks at our body as my servant and not the Lord's servant. Right? As soon as you get that confused and you think my body is my servant, uh, then you have fallen off into idolatry. So, first of all, our bodies are for the Lord's use, period. Secondly, our bodies will be raised someday for eternity, and we've already uh, mentioned that. But we're reminded that they are not temporal, but have an eternal aspect to them, so they cannot be seen only as something that can be abused, because they're made for much more than that. And again, this is something we struggle with. Because, and, and we got to be careful here because it just doesn't mean that we all have to be healthy. You know, completely over. To, you know, we all have to eat just the absolute best thing and can't ever have sugar, can't ever, you know, have anything that's bad for you. That's not what we're saying here. But we are being told that our bodies are important and they are temples of the Lord. And so it matters what you do with them. Yes, sin has brought death and sickness into the mix, but that doesn't change the purpose of the body. So we can't trivialize them or marginalize them just because we're going to get them fixed later on. See, that's what it, that's kind of what, and, and, and it's easy to fall into that trap, right? You know, I don't worry what I eat because I'm going to get a glorified body someday. Yes, but be careful that we don't end up abusing our body. Because we are, we want to have the strength and the stamina to serve and to do and to live properly too, right? So to just give up and let our bodies fall apart is going to hinder our service. So it, it requires, I think, a certain amount of responsibility. And and I'm not going to stand up here and tell you where that is. And be careful of being thinking that you're the health police and you can tell everybody how to eat. I've seen people do that. You know they. You know, well, you shouldn't be eating that, and they, they think they're going to go around telling everybody that. Well, be careful about it. But it doesn't mean that it's not a, it's not important. So I'll leave that, you know, at that point. The Corinthians evidently didn't realize their bodies were going to be raised someday, because when we get to chapter 15, Paul's got to explain all that. So I think that's part of the problem. The Corinthians think that, man, as soon as, this, as, as I die, I'm rid of this body, so really, who cares? And Paul says, no, you're you see here that one bad doctrine can corrupt other doctrines. <coughs> and so in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, it, it, it joined to Christ. Shall I then take that which is joined with Christ and make them members or join them to a prostitute? Because am I not bringing Christ into that relationship? The answer is yes. We are the bride of Christ. We have been joined to him. And so a lot of this, is just, it, it, the comparison between marriage and our relationship with the Lord helps us kind of understand what he's saying here. Just as we are not to think of ourselves as, you know, at, once I got married, I it would be a sin for me to think of myself as single. Or to think of every, everything I do as 
not having in some way a, a, a relationship up with Sandra. My actions bring Sandra into the uh, mix as well. We're, we're not one anymore. We're not two people. We're one, right? And so Paul's saying, look, Marriage illustrates your marriage with Christ. And so whatever's true in a physical realm of marriage, it holds true with Christ. So just as our bodies are not to be thought of as just our own, but also your spouses, so it's a similar with our relationship with Jesus. For me to be joined to someone who is not my wife is to desecrate the marriage relationship, because I am to be faithful to one person, and when I am not, I am desecrating the whole relationship. And Paul says, when you join yourself in a immoral way, you're doing the same thing with your profession in Christ. I cannot say that being with another woman is just affecting my body. And, and anybody that I hear knows that that's nonsense. Because my body is only doing what my mind wants it to do, what my mind is enjoying. Right? So it doesn't work that way. You cannot separate yourself from your body in that sense. This is one way that marriage pictures our heavenly marriage. We are to be seen as one, and so to, with Christ, just like we're I'm to be seen with one with my wife, and so I use my body like uh, that, um, so it is with Christ. And in fact, it also reveals a heart and a mind. If I join myself to uh, in this immoral way, as Paul's talking about, I am showing in my mind I have uh, gone off into full idolatry. Because I am willing to do something like that that dishonors Christ. If I'm exclusively His, then when I use my body for sinful purposes, and I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I'm bringing Christ into the mix. And so you're bringing the family name into scandal, it's certainly at, at the very least when you do something like that. But we know that it also affects our soul, because our bodies and souls are connected in that sense. So we can add to it also, not only is that one reason why we do we refrain from such immorality, but we could add the social and physical destruction that these things bring as well, as we try to, to always point out that there's good reasons why this, this isn't just God saying, I don't want you to have that kind of enjoyment. I don't want you to have fun. The Corinthians think that a brief visit to the prostitute is a casual thing. Something that uh, requires no long-term commitments. And so what we call it affairs. You know, I've, been, I've had an affair in it. It's a brief encounter, but it's it's over. It's casual. And Paul's response reveals a very different perspective of such activity. Many times, uh, you know, the, the male ego sometimes likes to refer to conquests. And Paul says, no, uh, you're not conquesting anybody. You're not conquering anybody. You're being conquered. And sometimes we have to remember that as well. That the prostitute is mastering the man. The man is not mastering her. So we cannot think of ourselves as isolated from Christ and the church any more than we can think of ourselves as single if we are married. It, it, 
I am not my own. As Paul says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Right? That means something. And he's going to finish this chapter with that very thought. This is why we must take these matters and marriage seriously. It doesn't matter if the culture treats these things casually or if they just not existent. Even a single person sins in this way and is just as guilty as a married person because you are bringing Christ into it as well. There's no difference. It's unholy union. You're trying to join heaven and hell. And it couldn't be more evil. That's what he'll get to here in verses 15 through 17. Where he says, verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute uh, becomes one body with her, or it is written, the two will become one flesh. The word joined there literally means to hold fast, to embrace strongly. You know, it's talking about the act. But he, verse 17, who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The flee sexual immorality. Verse 18. There's no, what's the secret to not doing this? Stop doing it. Don't, don't get in, don't make provisions for it. It's, it's off limits. And not just off limits, but you're going to destroy everything good in your life if you don't do that. You will never have a good relationship with somebody if you, uh, don't understand why spreading out this, uh, this affection, uh, Ruins the marriage. It, it, it makes it more much more difficult to have a good relationship. Don't do it. Flee from it, he says. No one sins with your body unless you make a conscious decision to do it. So while there are lots of things to do uh, that we can do to help in this area to grow in your love for Christ, I mean, the more you love Christ, the less, and the more you you, you love a good and strong relationship with your spouse, those things are helpful. Accountability partners, perhaps. At the end of the day, you can't be forced to sin with your body without your okay, right? And so, I think when Paul says this, he's saying take precautions, much like Joseph did, remember? Uh, when Joseph was around Potiphar's wife, and she would not leave him alone, and he realized that at some point, this is going to bite me, he flees. If she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. And, and Joseph knew that the only way to fix this is to get away. So Paul says that's exactly what he's telling us to do here. We have the power, the duty, not to put ourselves and our bodies in such places. You don't accidentally do this, right? So his main point here is because of what he has just said, we need to treat such activity like the pleasure. Now, let's finish by examining the latter part of verse 18, which is a little dif- more difficult. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now that requires some thought, because commentators aren't necessarily all uh, an agreement here and uh, it, it requires some thinking so I'm going to try to uh, offer you ha- what this means as I understand it some uh, take the I- see this as an idea of comparison so sexual sins do the most damage to the body so that adultery for instance really wrecks havoc on your body 
He can create um, diseases and things like that. So what Paul then is saying, if this is the case, is that every other sin is commits is outside the body, but sexual moral person sins against his own body. So you know you are get, open yourself up for diseases and things like that, which is certainly true. But I really don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think there's more to the point here because this isn't the only sin that damages the body. There are other ways to sin against your body in that sense. So I really don't think that's the point. Sinning against your body is different than sinning with your body. you got to think that through. Sinning against your body is different than sinning with your body. I mean, I'll illustrate, illustrate it like this. If I had a Rolls Royce, okay, you know, this beautiful car, and I drive it down to the local bank, I rob the bank, and I use the car to get away, I have sinned with the car. I have sinned in the car. You know, I've used the car to sin. If I take a big bucket of manure and pour it on the back seat, which essentially you can say, I've sinned against the car. I've defiled the car. And there's certainly the case where sexual immorality is a sin against my body. I am misusing the body. If I go out and steal something, I'm use, I'm sinning with the body. I'm sinning with my body. But there is a sense in which this type of sin is a sin against my body. And that's certainly true. And I think that's part of what Paul is saying. But you can also do that in a sense of other sins. If you're taking illegal drugs, for instance, you're sinning against your body because you are destroying your body. You're misusing your body, right? And that could be with alcohol or smoking, things like that. So, you know, some commentators say that's all Paul is saying here, that you're, the problem is he says all other sins. And so we know that there's got, I think, got to be more to it than that. Some also said that one difference between uh, this and other sins is that other sins generally come not in the substance or the partaking, but in the ex- excess, not the act itself. So in other words, gluttony is a sin because you, not in eating is not a sin, but gluttony is you're, you're taking excess. Whereas this, obviously, you can't be moderate in immorality. It's, it's just wrong, right? Well, that's true. But I, I don't think that you can say that's really satisfyingly explains what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> so, I don't think Paul's point is that immorality is bad for your body, so stay away from it, although that's clearly true. Because for many, it doesn't seem to be harming them at all. Some people can do all sorts of, they can abuse their body in all sorts of ways and seem to get witness, live to be a old age, you know, and have good health. So that, there's got to be more to it than that idea. I think, and I think the answer is that it, this sin is far more insidious because it strikes at the very definition of who we are as humans. It isn't just a sin against our body, but it is a sin against our humanity. While all other sins um, are sins against God, this sin is a sin against who we are as human beings. And so I think the best way to see this is that it fits well, and I think it fits well in his overall point, 
is that eating or drinking too much, for instance, showing a lack of self-control, it shows a lack of self-control, it's sin, but sexual unfaithfulness and immorality is a sin against who we are as human beings who have been made for the Lord. I am made to eat, and so I can indulge myself, but I'm not sinning against who I am, I'm, I'm supposed to eat, but this sin is a strike against who I am as a human being. Far from just doing what comes naturally, sexual sins strike at the very definition of what it means to be human. Now, again, this is so foreign to our thinking that it requires you know, some time maybe for it to sink in. Because we certainly aren't going to hear this anywhere else. But to sin in this way is the fundamental and most obvious casting off of the authority of God and it's a clear statement that I am my own person. And I think, again, that that's why we read what we do in Romans 1. Why is it that the final and fullest manifestation of rejecting God, it results in uh, sexual perversion? Because that is a sin. It, it, it shows, it's, it's the most obvious example of what it is to reject God's authority. Of, of not being what I was created to be. And whether one understands this or not doesn't lessen the sin. So eating too much or losing your temper isn't a repudiation of who you are. It's wrong, right? But joining yourself in this way to another strikes the very heart of who we are before the Lord. We are, of course, to be His and His alone. Since we are fully his, we illustrate that by being fully hers in marriage. We're illustrating that that's who, as a human being, I am to be solely for the Lord. And marriage is to reflect that. And this sin strikes at the very heart of that. It is sacred. So being joined in this way openly acts out everything contrary to what we profess to be. And to me... I think that is getting at the heart of what Paul is saying. So eating a little more than I should or whatever, it might be sin, and it can lead to serious problems. But deciding to worship a, the false god uh, in the high places by committing adultery, for instance, or immorality, is to openly rebel against God, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. It is to repudiate everything that I was created to be. Sexual relations and marriage and the family are given to us, certainly for propagation. But it has a spiritual aspect of worship and understanding of God, of who we are. And when we totally confuse that and ignore it, we, live, we begin to live in a way that God never intended us to live. Marriage is an illustration of the relationship between, uh, between the Godhead and the perfect intimacy of the Godhead. Uh, of our relationship with Christ. And so to be joined to another illicitly acts out spiritual adultery. And few things can truly said to be more important with these th than this matter and the proper use of these things. And I think this is the reason why. And so I'll, I'll repeat this part for the last time in 1 Corinthians. This perhaps explains why these things are referred to so often in Scripture. 
both by the account of these, as we read accounts of it happening and as we read uh, scriptures that prohibit and explain how they are to be practiced, is why I find myself speaking about these things more often than I really would like to. It isn't because I'm skipping around looking for them, because you know that we go through, you know, this as as we come across it, I speak about them. They permeate scripture. They're important. And we can have a Victorian attitude and be uncomfortable when we come to these parts and skip over them when we read them with our children and completely miss the point of why they're there. Or we can deal with them because there will be few things that your children will face in life, like these kind of temptations, few things that will ruin their lives and their marriages if they don't understand not just what God would have us do, but why these things are important. What Paul is saying here. See, this isn't the Lord just spicing up the Bible. It is because few things demonstrate the depravity of man and his ruin by sin as when he commits these types of sins. And so, obviously, Christians are, should be a people who want nothing to do with this. And so I'll finish by reminding us that this isn't treating intimacy, you know, sexual activity, as a bad thing. Everything I've said, none of, none of what I've said means it's a bad thing, and nothing that we see in chapter 7 is going to change that, because... Some people take a thing in chapter 7 and try to make it out that, you know, all this is kind of bad. If you stay away from it. None, none of that is true. God is not trying to repress us, repress us sexually. We are actually elevating it by reserving it for an exclusive, exclusive relationship with one person. Instead of making it common and base, which is what? Those who say that I should be able to do whatever I want to do, well, you can spread it out all you want to, but you be, but you ruin you don't. It's no longer special. Oh, it might be pleasurable, but you're not getting what out of it what you should be getting out of it. So instead of making a common in base, the Lord shows us how to elevate it so it can be enjoyed the most. And enjoyment isn't just the physical pleasure of how it feels, but enjoyment of these things is how it can cement a relationship to have the highest form of intimacy that you can never have with, with people if you don't it, it keep it exclusive. In other words, God knows best. And, he, and Paul's explaining to us why all this matters and why when we just, you know, Submit to the Lord, to His commands, to you know the, the Lord has understanding so far above us. When, when, when he's, if He's telling us these things, we can take it to the bank. There's a good reason for it, right? And listen to the Lord. Flee sexual immorality, and you will be better off for it. Believe me, and it is a serious sin for so many reasons. When we don't, right? We'll stop there. Today, we've got one more message, uh, finishing up chapter 6, Lord willing, next week. Questions or comments, and I'll pray for the uh, food, and then we can start right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God and for these things, Lord, they are serious, and not always uh, things we like to talk about, but things that we must, and we are living in, in a situation where people have 
decided that they don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about things with our children, in the churches. And so there is confusion. There is misunderstanding about these things because we will not be honest. and We will not take God's word seriously. So, Lord, I pray of nothing else. We have done that today. That you would help us to be able to think through these things and to uh, maintain lives that are pleasing to you, that save us from a world of trouble. Uh, we'll just listen and submit to you. Thank you for the food and the fellowship that we will enjoy, and we ask your blessings upon that as well. In Jesus' name.